Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. The show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law, the Universe, and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by the HOCL Association, the first trade association for the HOCL industry. HOCL is the chemical our white blood cells produce to fight infection, now available in shelf-stable form for the first time in human history. With dozens of use cases, HOCL is the next great home and commercial commodity on par with baking soda, as it combines the strength of chlorine with the safety and versatility of water. HOCL will revolutionize skin care, wound care, pet care, disinfection, and usher in a new era of clean agriculture. It even works as a seed-to-sale additive for cannabis with dozens of incredible benefits. Learn more at hocla.org. My guest today is Carlos Tanner. Carlos is the director of the Ayahuasca Foundation, a nonprofit organization located in the Amazon rainforest of Peru. He organizes healing retreats, educational courses, and medical research led by Shipibo healers called Coranderos, who work with a unique plant medicine tradition to treat everything from depression and anxiety to cancer and diabetes. Thank you so much for joining me today, Carlos, and welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much, Pacifico. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm very excited for it. So take me back. What first led you to want to help people through plant medicine? First, I needed help myself. I think that's a common story that people find themselves in the position of helping others when they first need to help themselves. I had my life kind of spiraling out of control in 2003. I found myself deep into heroin addiction and I ended up driving my car off the road, having blacked out behind the wheel because I was doing drugs and drinking and woke up in my car underwater. It was filling with water quickly. I had to jump out the window and swim to shore and turned around having no idea where I was and watched the rest of my car just sink beneath the surface. And that was a big wake up call for me that I definitely needed to do something dramatic to save my life. Literally a few days later, I got an email from a friend of mine who was in the Amazon rainforest in Iquitos, Peru. And she had met these two guys that knew a corandero named Don Juan who worked with ayahuasca. And she was going to attend some ayahuasca ceremonies and wanted to know if I wanted to fly down to Peru and join her. And had she written me any other time, I don't know what my response would have been. But at that time, I knew that this was what I needed to do. And so I did in May of 2003, fly down to Peru and drank ayahuasca for the first time with Don Juan in five ceremonies. And I was healed in a way that I never even knew possible. 
I found the roots of afflictions that I didn't know, you know, what, that there were those roots and managed to resolve childhood traumas and experience an incredible transformation in my life. And during that time, the Corandero Don Juan told me that it was my path to be a healer and he invited me to be his apprentice. I accepted his offer and I returned to Peru in January of 2004 and began living with him and his family and studying plant medicine. And about three years into my own personal studies, I came up with the idea that maybe I could help other people to understand this tradition using my own experience as a student. And that eventually would lead to 2009, the founding of the Ayahuasca Foundation. Wow, that is easily the most intense story of getting introduced to the industry that I've heard. That's incredibly powerful. Thank you for sharing that. So tell me a little bit more of what was that first ayahuasca experience like for you? Oh, man, the very first ceremony was incredibly fascinating and also incredibly terrifying and unbelievably unpleasant. No one, this was before there was even the concept of an ayahuasca tourism industry. No one had spoken with me about ayahuasca before going to the ceremony, before traveling to Peru. No one had given me any tips on preparation. There was nothing I could find online about that either. There was just very little information in total. And so I was a drug addict. So I was using drugs like right up to the day of the ceremony. And that is not a recommendation at all. And so I, you know, I crapped my pants. I threw up like 15 times. I was like, just in a very uh, unpleasant situation. I was crying in the fetal position outside in the grass in the jungle. I it was terrible. And I really questioned whether I would do it again. But the visions I was having were just so profound. So not profound in their meaning, but just profound in their like realness. It was like so real. I remember one time like handing my wallet to someone like a spirit in my visions and then instantly checking my pockets to see if I had actually just done that. It was like I couldn't really tell what was real and what wasn't. And and so that was like fascinating, but it was fascinating in a, in kind of a very terrible way, at least in my perceptions at that time. Thankfully, the chief of the Achwari tribe happened to be in that ceremony, which was an incredible synchronicity for me. And uh, while I was crying in the fetal position, he saw me and I saw him and he waved me back into the ceremony and his presence was so impressive and, and that he was under com total control where I was a total mess. And that helped me, one, to realize that this is more about me than it is ayahuasca. At the time, I was like, why would anybody do this? This is what ayahuasca <laughs> does. But now I saw, no, this is me. And so I, that turned my gaze inward as what's going on inside of me. And that was a very important lesson to learn that this was much more about my own reaction to ayahuasca rather than what ayahuasca does. And then second, was he was such an impressive figure that it like really instilled in me the desire to be a man, so to speak, to step up and my next. Uh, so I did decide to do it again. And my next ceremony, I like purposefully went in there thinking I'm going to sit like a chief. I'm going to embody this like 
presence that I had witnessed, thankfully. And and he wasn't there. I never saw him again. I never even spoke with him. But that one little hand gesture and his own presence was enough to make a lasting impression on me that would really actually help me for the rest of my life. So then how did your relationship with ayahuasca evolve from that early point? Specifically, like that second ceremony, I went in with a new mantra, which was that I won't be afraid. And very quickly that played itself out in what had been frightening and terrifying visions for me in the first ceremony were now beautiful, like almost like from demonic to angelic, like in in how powerful the effect of fear was in my response to the experience and my perception. And so that was an amazing lesson. And from then on, once I was able to overcome fear, which happened in the second ceremony, then the fascination, I just couldn't get enough of it. Like I just wanted more and more. And, and that led to the third ceremony where I think that the Corandero Don Juan kind of could see that in me that I just couldn't get enough of it. You know, I was just like so excited to to experiment and to explore and, and to know this new dimension of possibilities. And that's when he said that it was my path to be a healer and when he invited me to be his student. Oh, wow. So what misconceptions do you find that people have about plant medicine? One, I think that people now use the term plant medicine, and I I don't mean to be offensive if that's the way you're using it, to refer only to psychotropic plants or psychedelics. Plant medicine is an unbelievably incredible, diverse collection of plants that are used to heal all in many different ways. So even just like drinking ginger tea or something, that's plant medicine too. But, But in terms of like psychedelics or psychotropic plant medicine specifically, I think that what I would say is the most common misconception is that the drug does it, like the medicine does it, like hearkening back to what I just said was an important lesson for me. Um, I feel that the context and consciousness elements are so important and the con- how the context shapes the consciousness. But we're very familiar with the concept set and setting, which is great. But I don't think that we give enough attention to the set part of it. We might think a lot about the setting and that kind of fits in with our materialist paradigm in the West. But the set part, the mindset part, I I think deserves a lot more attention. And I think that the traditions of plant medicine in the Amazon rainforest really acknowledge that and work with that. And ultimately, that what we call a tradition perhaps could be better understood as a science of consciousness activation or enhancement because just the idea of a ceremony, which ayahuasca has always drank in a ceremony, you know, if you were to put ceremony into other medicines, for instance, like if you did chemotherapy in a ceremony, it would be a very different experience. And and so that I, I feel deserves more attention than we often give it. So it's not just take the drug. It's really how you take it and how you've prepared your mind to take it and how you will respond to it as a result of how you've prepared your mind. And a lot of that isn't so conscious. And that's why I say the tradition is like a science of consciousness enhancement, because you're not purposely thinking about creating the best mindset when you go into a ceremony. 
you're just walking in. But because it is a ceremony, it just automatically has an influence on our behavior. And so that part of it, I think we would definitely benefit as a society or Western culture from learning more about. So how do you think we can balance ancestral traditions with these new modern systems and practices? And now that we do have essentially like a, an ayahuasca and psychedelic tourism industry growing around the world. Right. The term ancestral, I love because it includes everyone. It's an all-inclusive term, uh, as opposed to indigenous. I'm not indigenous, but yet my ancestors practiced a form of shamanism. In fact, every one of us had our ancestors practicing some form of shamanism, which typically involved the ingestion of psychotropic plants, but definitely was a very elaborate science of plant medicine. And so one of the key principles of all shamanic practices or all ancestral traditions was the principle that we are all in this together. We are all part of the same whole, whether you call that the earth or whether you call that nature or whether you get regional about it, but ultimately everything is interconnected. And and so I am a part of nature. And at, just like a tree is a part of nature and the animals are a part of nature, I too am a part of nature. And that one principle will would is perhaps the most important principle because it's at the core of who we are and and what our role in in life is it really shapes and defines our identities if we adopt that point of view and so if we are going to see the expansion of psychedelic therapy or even the the psychedelic tourism industry i would hope that it is guided by a a root identifying perception of interconnectedness with nature. Mm. I love that. So do you have a framework for the different purposes of different psychedelics, for example? I look at it quite differently, like I said, about mindset. And perhaps I could answer that with a more specific story. So I was a student of Don Juan Tangoa. Unfortunately, he passed away this July, but I lived with him and his family my first four years. And you could say it was an apprenticeship. I'm not, it wasn't, certainly wasn't formal. So I I guess I was really just living with him and, and learning from him. But he did not use very many plants. Now, he was an ayahuascaro, so most of the healing work he did was in ayahuasca ceremonies. But Outside of the ceremonies, he worked with just a handful of other plants. But his relationship with those plants was so deep. His knowledge of those plants was so pure that he was able to heal almost everything. In fact, I witnessed him heal a patient with AIDS. I witnessed him heal a patient with cancer, which was documented in the film Ayahuasca Diary. But yet he did it just with a handful of plants. And so that helped me to develop an idea that is unusual, I guess you could say, from the Western point of view, which was that it's much more about our relationship to the medicines that determines their efficacy than the chemistry of them. Now, that's not really the answer you were looking for. The answer you were looking for was probably something more on the lines that ayahuasca is a tremendous tool for healing trauma and that for certain, I would agree with. But 
I also would put this caveat that whatever you resonate most with will be your greatest medicine. And so not every ayahuasca is not for everybody. And everyone has their own ideas and beliefs. And you need to work within those to find the best path for you as an individual. And, and that's really what's going to bring about the greatest healing. Just because I've seen so many people heal using ayahuasca, heal their traumas, doesn't mean that anyone could heal their traumas with ayahuasca because some people might have a real adversity. They might not like that experience. It might not resonate with them at all. Whereas some other medicine or treatment process does. And I think when it comes to finding the, our best path forward for our own well-being and health, we really have to listen to ourselves, listen to how we feel, what our intuition is, getting to know ourselves. And a lot of people can make certain decisions right off the bat and, and then you know, want to look deeper and hopefully come to that point where you really understand what your best path forward is. And then it's just a question of following it. No, I love that. And it is part of that journey of self-discovery that not everything in the universe is for you. And that goes for all psychedelics. And there's probably a psychedelic or a medicine or something for everyone, but it's just a matter of finding what actually works for you. You might react negatively to things. You might be too terrified to do ayahuasca more than once or something, but you might find that mushrooms or iboga or peyote or whatever plant it is or whatever psychedelic it might be, that's what actually unlocks something for you. That there's no psychedelic that is a, a panacea for, oh, this is going to make everything better. It's really a prompt or an invitation to do some type of inner work that certain psychedelics are going to be maybe a little bit more heavy handed in pushing you to do that work, whereas others might leave it as more just an invitation or, or an option. But finding one that actually works effectively for you that you can continue to not just have the experience on X chemical, but that you're bringing you're able to successfully integrate that into your daily life to improve your life on more than just a single day or single journey basis. Totally. Yeah, that, that's a great point. There's no, I, I guess we, we use maybe black and white terms like sick and healthy, but really we know those to be spectrums. There's like a whole frequency spectrum of sickness and there's a whole frequency spectrum of healthy. And when you say you're healed, we that word puts it in the black and white phrase, but there's really no end to healing. There's always like a deeper level to go and it's really a life journey. And and so this isn't so much about a single act. It's really about transforming who we are. And and the, what I mean by that is by empowering ourselves to recognize and take control of the way we respond to our experiences. That to me is the power that we have. We have the ability to respond as we determine. And it's our response to what happens to us that ultimately influences our interpretation of an experience. And that interpretation is what we end up remembering. And most of what we call reality is really a collection of memories. And so we're really calling reality a collection of our interpretations, which were heavily influenced by the way we responded to what happened. And so therefore, like our reality is really ultimately in our own hands, at least the way that we remember, which is oftentimes what you call reality. If I said, what's reality, you would just refer to all of your memories 
and those memories would actually be your interpretations of experiences. And so if we can take power into our own hands, take responsibility, our ability to respond into our own hands, then we can really shape the way that we interpret our experiences and remember them and ultimately like shape the reality that we exist in. Oh, I love that. So powerful. So how do you think we can build a better psychedelics industry writ large? Oh man, that's a great question. I guess one would be to get out of the clinic and get back into the forest. If we could transform the definition of clinic so that it means forest, that would be a great step forward. Because to me, psychedelics came from nature. They were, in a way, nature finding a way to communicate more directly with us. And I feel ayahuasca is a cool example because ayahuasca vines grow in secondary forests. It takes cutting trees down, which humans do almost exclusively because there are not very many forest fires in the Amazon rainforest. And, and that is what causes the right environment for ayahuasca to grow. Mushrooms, for example, grow cow shit, which is an animal that it has a very close relationship with humans. So you don't tend to find cows wild cows. You find cows because of humans. So it's almost as if psychedelics are finding humans specifically. They And maybe perhaps as an intentional goal of communicating with us. And so if we're going to investigate them, then I feel that nature needs to be a very big part of that focus. And nature is not something you can isolate. You can't just look at a tree. You have to also then look at the soil and you have to take in consideration the rain and you have to look at this, the sunlight and you have to think of the weather. And, and then there's all of the nutrients that are coming from other outside sources. There's no end to what you can isolate in nature like it's, it's inisolatable and we should also consider ourselves in the same regard and so for that reason i would hope that as we move forward in our desire to understand psychedelics and how we can utilize them it would take us out of the clinic out of the isolation mentality and into the interconnection mentality that i mentioned earlier yeah, it has been fascinating to see the rise of like the dichotomy of what you're talking about. On the one hand, you do have the white lab coat, pharma, patented medicine approach. And then you have the people building retreat centers, people doing exactly what you're doing in a variety of different contexts with uh, a variety of different substances. That's okay, let's, we're going to craft this experience and this journey, and you're going to get back to nature. You're going to be able to experience the interconnectedness of everything, which I think I just being in nature is more conducive to that than sitting in, you know, a white lab coat ketamine infusion room or something like it's there's that overly clinical part to that, which is, it's ironic, that's actually been one of the main things that's really, I think, blown up the fastest just because ketamine schedule three, it's a lot easier to get people prescribing it, people using it, there's less roadblocks there. I think that the future does reside more in what you're talking about in terms of building a, a large tourism industry that gets people outdoors, reconnects people to source through nature and finding different substances that are going to help augment that experience. I, again, like that interconnectivity mentality 
to me is a great source of inspiration, uh, but also a great example. We recognize in nature that it is always in a state of returning to balance and, and maintaining balance. Like it's impossible not to see that. And we've done so many studies to, to exemplify that. And as a part of nature, our own system, like my body and my myself, I'm in a state of balance too. Like I'm always trying to return to balance, usually not consciously, although sometimes I have some conscious influence in, into it, but that's a part of who I am. But the isolation mentality doesn't have that. There is no innate desire for balance when you isolate chemical constituents or active ingredients or things of that nature. And so when you're working with a pharmaceutical product, it doesn't have an instinctual desire for balance as part of it, but nature always will. And so if you're inside a building, you don't have a, an energy influencing you towards balance. But if you're in a forest, you can't help but be influenced by that energy because that energy is all around you at work, maintaining and returning every being to a state of balance. And I think if we were to look at that more and, and recognize that more, then we would hopefully be prescribing more time outside and more connection with nature because ultimately that is who we are and what we are and all of the medicines that we need are most likely right there. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's been really interesting to me to see, you know, some companies going out there seeking patents to essentially take the psychedelic experience out of psychedelics and where it's just, okay, we're going to make psilocybin non-hallucinogenic, but you're still going to get like the antidepressant you know, or anti-anxiety or whatever, you're going to get these other therapeutic benefits. And at first I was are you kidding me. Like the whole point is the trip. And then I think my thinking on it started to shift a little bit as I was like, okay, if you're going to build those as like the next class of antidepressants, hell yeah, I would rather have a tuned down version of psilocybin rather than like your standard pharma antidepressants. But to me, it then becomes like there's two separate goals there, right? There's the healing of trauma, healing of depression, anxiety, whatever mental health issues is that's totally in that's one box. And then the other one is actual spiritual growth, ascending your consciousness and reaching a different level of understanding of the nature of the universe. And that's where you absolutely still need the actual psychedelic trip experience. And whereas before I thought, you know, I, I think only the latter should exist. I think I've definitely matured to a place where I'm like, oh, there definitely is a place for both. And they both have their specific use cases. And that one existing is not the pharmaceutical industry, like creating different second and third generation psychedelic compounds that aren't really psychedelic, but give the benefits is not actually going to replace ayahuasca or LSD or mushrooms or anything like that, because it's a fundamentally different experience, both of which can have a role in humanity's, I guess, evolution. I think that, again, like we're, we're talking about our, our current paradigm, the, the like Western or, or modern medical paradigm, and as that is a very symptom management based mm. system. And so if you're looking, if, if you're going to make a comparison to antidepressant medication, for example, antidepressant medication isn't trying to create any transformation. It isn't trying to cure. It is just trying to make your symptoms manageable. And there's 
obviously there could be made a very strong criticism of that style of medicine, especially if you include the economic impetus to, to manage an illness, uh, which is going to be much more profitable than if you cured it. But the ancestral perspective or the indigenous paradigm would obviously want to cure it, would be to transform what is the root cause so that it is not detrimental to your health anymore and, and be, can even be transformed into a benefit. And so if your depression is caused by trauma, for example, taking something that chemically will suppress the symptoms could very well be beneficial because it allows you to, to live your life quite normally as long as you're taking this drug that you have to pay for. But if you address the root cause of the trauma and can transform the personal truths that were inaccurately formed as a result of the trauma, then you can transform your self-perception so that you don't feel depressed as a result of the transformation of the root cause. And that's what a psychedelic experience tends to do. And one of the reasons why a psychedelic experience is able to do that is because the psychedelic nature of the experience gets us out of our normal program. It expands our awareness so that we're in uh, uncharted territory. And the fact that we're in uncharted territory opens up this new learning channel so that even if we're doing something that we've done a thousand times, if you're doing it under the influence of psychedelics, it's a new experience. Even you know how to do it, you know it by heart, but now because of the psychedelic nature of the experience, it's new, which means you're going to relearn it and you're essentially going to create new neural pathways, even if it's something that you've had neural pathways that are set in stone, so to speak, in your consciousness. And that is a very liberating and powerful experience because if you're working on a program that is detrimental to you, a thought program, a belief system that is detrimental to you, like what happens with trauma, but you're able to relearn those patterns and essentially change the neural pathways, then you can change them according to proper context where that's where that kind of the set and setting comes in to something that's not detrimental and is beneficial. And then from then on, you can start with integration work and, and guidance to work with that new neural pathway and that new program. And eventually it will replace the one that was detrimental to you. And that's one way of describing how psychedelic healing happens, which you don't see if you're just working within a system of symptom management. How would you, for the uninitiated, how would you characterize the difference between an opiate experience versus a psychedelic experience? Oh, oh man, that's a tough one. How do you describe either one of them? And an opiate experience is very uh, numbing. So it's almost the opposite direction. So a psychedelic experience most likely is an amplification of sensory perception so that you're, you can see beyond the visible spectrum, hear beyond the audible spectrum, like all of your internal senses that we use to receive information about what's going on inside us are amplified. So the world around you seems like it's doing much more than you've ever seen it do before or, or feel it doing before. And also you feel inside like things are happening much more than you've ever been able to perceive or be aware of inside as well. 
Whereas opiates go in the opposite direction where you, you're closed off, where things quiet down, so to speak, where they're more muffled or reduced in your sensory per- perception. Yeah, but that can be in a way that we might, maybe if we imagine if we were to crawl inside our, our bed with our, our blankets over us. So yeah, we, we're muffling, we can't hear as well, but we're safe you know, which is a common like thing. If a child is scared or something, they might hide under the, the blankets in, of their bed because it provides this safety because part of what was creating the fear was their response to certain stimulus, certain perceptions that they were having in their perceptive ability, like sounds that they were hearing. If you don't want to hear that sound, then like cover your ears. Or if you don't want to see that sight, like, cover your eyes. And, and that's how you get to this comfort level or this safety level. And that's what maybe opiates do for people is they bring them to this safe space. And I, psychedelics don't really bring you to a safe space. They actually bring you to the precipice maybe, but in, in that expanded awareness, and like I was just describing also, there's this real potential to transform our understanding and to make more accurate our perceptions and our beliefs about who we are and the world around us. Mm. I love that. So are there any bad recommendations that you hear in your profession and area of expertise? Oh, one of the worst recommendations that I hear is that you don't need a shaman. Just buy them stuff online and make the ayahuasca yourself because everyone is their own shaman. That I definitely do not recommend that. Of course, like Everyone is free to make their own decisions. But in a way, that's saying you don't need a surgeon. Just get some scalpels and some anesthetics and you'll be able to do your own <laughs> surgery. You know, it, It's kind of ridiculous when you put it into that context. But if you were to relate it to like spiritual surgery, then, you know, I'm not a big fan when I see that recommendation. You don't need a shaman. Just get your hands on the stuff and you'll be fine. And yeah, so that definitely would be bad recommendation in my opinion. So how has a failure or an apparent failure set you up for later success? And do you have a favorite failure? Oh man, that's so many failures. But of course, my, my the first failure would be my my failure to in life i guess at the time is how i perceived it where i was a drug addict i was a heroin addict and i would say that a lot of people probably would perceive it as a failure but of course that really like hitting rock bottom in that moment that i shared was what opened the door for a much more profound transformation than I ever possibly could imagine. And my whole life path was determined by that failure. So that would probably be my favorite one, which I guess would be my heroin addiction. Thank you. So what is one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've ever made? And feel free to interpret the word investments as broadly as you like. Yeah, I invested a lot of time and a lot of energy in living in the Amazon rainforest, working with Coranderos, indigenous healers, learning from them, and eventually like investing even more time to build the Ayahuasca Foundation and the center and to work with the research team. It's been this, this epic journey, but 
really that investment of, I want to say it was just like faith that got me on that plane and made such a dramatic change in my life where I was the the production manager of a newspaper in, in Massachusetts. Like I had a good job, but technically I was like success by what we write on paper. And I really left my entire life behind to go to the Amazon rainforest to to chase a, a feeling, to chase an intuition that obviously was a very profound one. And thanks to the ayahuasca experiences, it was so profound. But yeah, that was that was the ultimate investment of, of my life, really. And I'm just so thankful for it. It has played out in, in, in ways that I never could possibly have imagined. But of course, also, I met my wife in Peru and we have a daughter who was born in Peru, and now I now I, I think I'm more of a dad than I am anything, and I'm just so blessed to be a dad and to be a husband, and then also to continue to be a student of nature and plant medicine. So what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? Oh, that's a great question. I really appreciate you asking that question. The first book is a series of books. The Life and Teachings of the Masters of the Far East by Baird T. Spaulding. And man, it's amazing that whenever I say that, very few people have ever heard of those books. And that is amazing to me because those books are, there's it's a series of three books. The collection entirety is six, but the story itself is the first three. And those books are absolutely unbelievable. They are the most important books of my life. The gap between that set of books and the next most important book in my life is probably greater than the gap from that book down to my least favorite book like it's that they're so important to me in my life and so valuable and brought so many lessons in the reading of them and how those lessons played out in my actual experience of course i was reading them while living in the Amazon and drinking ayahuasca regularly with a Corandero, which clearly had an influence. The second book would be Biology of Belief by Bruce Lipton, a book that is probably more well-known. That book was very helpful for me in understanding the role of consciousness, especially from a very scientific point of view, opening my eyes to the concept and this new field of epigenetics, which now has played out in the most fabulous way because the research we've been hosting at the Ayahuasca Retreat, which was just published in the journal Frontiers in Psychiatry, was epigenetic analysis that showed that there was a change in epigenetic expression as a result of doing an ayahuasca retreat. But the introduction to epigenetics, which was for me in 2005, when I read that book, that was like very dramatic and helped me to also develop what has now become my perspective on healing and life in general. So definitely the biology of belief. And then the third book, I want to just go to The Alchemist because The Alchemist introduced me to this one notion, which is the overarching theme of the book, where if you if you truly desire it, the entire universe will conspire to help you to achieve it. And that played out. Even that night when I drove my car into a river, I, I made a declaration to the universe that I would do something to save my life. Like I was going to make a big change in my life. And, and then when I got the email from my friend inviting me to go to the Amazon rainforest to drink ayahuasca, that was like the sign, the response. It was an omen. That's the term used in The Alchemist. So that idea that 
there is a communication was definitely heavily influenced by reading The Alchemist. So I'm going to go with that one, The Alchemist. Although I wanted to say The Overstory, which I just read, but I guess you're not, you can't really say a book that you just read. It's got to be, <laughs> you know, it's got to be a book you've been reading several times over the last decade or something. But The Overstory, highly recommended. That will be my like bonus book by Richard Powers. Fantastic, fantastic book. Yeah, I just had someone uh, recommend that the other day as well. So keeps coming up. Interesting. Cool. Thank you. So if you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say and why? Oh, it would say what I just broke down for you. It would say true responsibility is colon your ability to respond because it's not what happens to you. It's how you respond to what happens to you that determines how you interpret your experiences and how you interpret your experiences is how you remember them. And your memories of the past are what we call our reality. I love that. That might be too much. It's too many words. People are (laughs) either going to crash their car or they're going to miss half of it. Maybe just the first part, like responsibility is your ability to respond It's not what happens to you, but how you respond to what happens to you. Or even just skip that first part, because that's just me trying to be cheeky. It's not what happens to you. It's how you respond to what happens to you. Oh, but I do love that, right? Like the sort of almost, almost like at a silly level, like hidden meetings within where like responsibility, just the ability to respond. Like I think of it like something like gratitude, right? Like it's just a grateful attitude. It's there's so much just bound up in the word that we end up taking for granted. But it's oh, if you just break that down, like it's a really unique way to just think and, and about it and approach it rather than all the sort of baggage that might have collected over the years. But that to me, not the the like cheeky part of it, but the, the reality of it. Yeah, I can't control what happens to me, but I can control how I respond to what happens to me. And that is really way more important. And then we're always going to have a point in our lives that we think is shitty. Something shitty has happened. And it's it, that's when we're at our greatest moment where we get to decide, what do I want to do with this? And how you respond is everything and yeah you know every one of us has had something shitty happen and and the success stories are based on the response and and uh, you can take it the other way too why not take it in the best way possible and to me the best way possible is tied into that interconnectivity that i keep coming back to where Mm. if you know that you're a part of nature then you know that there's something greater than you that has more control over what's happening. The earth is far more wise than me. I could never try to imagine what the earth knows. And I feel that the earth knows exactly what she's doing. And so if I'm a part of that, then whatever's happening to me must have opportunity, must have a reason. There must be something. And so rather than to shake my fist up at the sky and say, why me? I need to open my eyes to look and see what those opportunities are, because I know for sure that I will feel that gratitude you mentioned in the future when I look back and see how it all played out. So why not grab that gratitude from the future and bring it to me now in the present so that it can help me through this shitty time 
with the knowledge that it will all work out. Oh yeah. And I think, I think Victor Frankl is probably like our best you know, example of that, right? Just like being in the absolute, one of the absolute worst scenarios you can imagine and being able to persevere through it only by your ability to respond to your situation with what it needs to be able to get through. You can, you can be in a war zone, you can get cancer, you can be, get another like life altering or life ending a terminal illness or something, but so much of it is just bound up in that mindset to be able to push through something and make the best of it and come out the other side, the better for it. Now is definitely the time to make the most of that realization. Oh, absolutely. There's so much upheaval now and, and systems crumbling. And I think we've seen a bit behind the curtain to say, oh, wait a minute. Like we don't actually have to do any of this at all. We can do something profoundly different with society and with our lives individually. And, and it's like, oh, now people don't want to go back to work or now people don't want to go back to an office or they're just people now we're all in this shift of seeking out these different paradigms and figuring out what's going to happen next. Right. When it's almost like it's right in front of us. We all know somebody at the furthest ends of these spectrums, which seem to be like the widest of the spectrums we've ever seen, where we've got someone who's holed up in fear and in, in, in afraid to live their lives. And then someone who has learned all these lessons and transformed their entire life. And, and they're both just responses almost to the exact same thing. Mm. Oh, absolutely. So what advice would you give to a smart, driven high school or college graduate that's about to enter the real world? And is there any advice you think they should ignore? One would be back to that billboard, of course. That's like my best advice. But but I guess two would be that life is about relationships. And if you want to focus on something, focus on your relationships, because that's where you'll find all your joy. And three, don't let anybody tell you what success is. It's certainly not something that you can write down on paper. It has everything to do with how you feel inside and how you how fulfilled you feel inside. And no one can tell you what will do that for you, except you. Mm. Awesome. So who have been some of your heroes throughout your life and how did they help or inspire you? Uh, I, you know, when I was a little kid, Albert Einstein was a, my hero. And I, I guess I just admired that he seemed so brilliant, but yet also was like kooky and silly and like an artist and a musician. And like, he wasn't like some snotty lab coat wearing scientist that you imagine. So maybe that made me feel that I wanted to bring those elements into my life more and, and have more silliness in my life, which I certainly feel like I've continue to do. But one of my, one of my, I guess I have two heroes and one's going to be controversial, but the first one is Ina Mae Gaskin, who became my hero when my wife got pregnant and my wife and I started doing some research on uh, pregnancy and childbirth and raising children. Ina Mae Gaskin is still alive, thankfully, although she's getting pretty old these days. She might even be in her nineties now, but she was, if not still is the president of the Mid International Midwives Association. And, and she really led a crusade to bring natural childbirth back. And my daughter was born at home as a result of reading her books. My wife and I decided to have a home birth and, and really view like 
childbirth differently. And, and then of course that led to viewing child rearing and raising differently. And, and she was really the inspiration for that. And, and I do feel like her contributions are incredibly important, but almost all unknown and except for those, you know, few people that do know her work. But now you see like midwives are much more accepted. It's actually common to have a midwife be involved in a birth experience now, even if you do have it in a hospital, midwives are allowed in hospitals. It's not like some kooky, uh, witchcraft type of thing like it had been even just one generation ago so her contribution was really helpful but especially for me in in my own childbirth experience and having our daughter and then the third hero is the controversial one because that is robert f kennedy jr and uh, robert f kennedy jr is an activist lawyer the son of robert kennedy and the nephew of john f kennedy our, our president uh, he is an activist lawyer who has done wonders fighting against really big corporations. He was co-counsel on the case against DuPont, which was won in favor, which demonstrated that C8 and these forever chemicals were in fact poisoning our waters and still have poisoned our waters and the production of Teflon. And he won that case against DuPont, which was such a powerful corporation. And he did that in the favor of the health of humans and humankind against like corporate greed. And then he was also co-counsel in the case against Vioxx, which was a pharmaceutical company whose drug caused people to have heart attacks, like at an alarming rate, over 60,000 people had died from heart attacks because they were taking this arthritis pain medication called Vioxx. And so he won that case or helped in the court proceedings to win that case for those that giant uh, class action lawsuit. And more recently, he won or was the counsel for the case against Monsanto or the, th the first three cases that were won against Monsanto, which proved that Monsanto's product Roundup, which contains glyphosate, caused non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And those three cases, which were awarded like $80 million each, led to the class action lawsuit that was also won with a judgment of $12 billion for uh, Monsanto to have to pay to all of the people that got cancer from their products. Unfortunately, Roundup is still for sale. You can go to any hardware store and buy it, even though it's proven to cause cancer. And the EPA stands by its safety, which is ridiculous after losing a, a court case like that. But he is an, a very important person. I think that he's a hero. The reason why it's controversial is because he has taken a stance uh, against the safety of the COVID vaccines and questions the safety research or, or the lack thereof for a, a product that's being like pushed so hard on, on the global public. Well, thank you for that wide-ranging list of people probably the most controversial person I've had in there. That's great. So tell me, what are your go-to self-care strategies, tactics, or techniques? One of the things that I'm so blessed with is that I have a living, breathing self-care tactic in my home, which is my daughter. So she's like the ultimate regulator. I can just give her a hug. And if I have anxiety, it goes away. If I'm depressed, I no longer feel that way like it, it she brings me to a state of homeostasis very quickly 
and and thankfully I get to spend a lot of time with her. So she's definitely my go-to. And nature, of course, if I can get outside in nature, that always helps to bring me back to balance as well. Nature is definitely my universal if, if I'm not close to her and sometimes I'm very far away if I'm in the Amazon rainforest. and But if I'm with trees and if I'm surrounded by plants, then, then that's really my medicine. And breathing, of course, but mindfulness. But I, I would really say nature more than any other than my daughter. Oh, that's a beautiful answer. Carlos, thank you so much. This has been a really fun and enlightening conversation, but it does bring me to my final question of the day. And that is, what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? Oh, that is a very good question. A lot of kind things have been done for me. The kindest. Well, oh man, my mind is like trying not to forget. The last thing I would want to do is answer and then remember a kinder thing. I'm going to go with something very interesting and I'm also going to like try not to worry about it. But someone gave me a tip very early on. And I, they gave me $20. I had been starting to like facilitate people's personal healing journeys in the Amazon. And this was before the Ayahuasca Foundation. I was just not really trying to do it. But people were coming to the Corandero that I was living with. And, and I was just naturally like fulfilling this role. And I, I walked someone to the airport. And, and when they got to, to see them off, and, and when they got to the airport, they gave me $20. And I refused it. I was like, oh, no, you don't have to give me a tip. And and he said, the correct response is thank you. And so I don't mean that him giving me the monetary tip, but that one tip was actually like very helpful for me. And, and so I'm going to put it into the category of the kindest thing because sometimes we just forget that the answer should just be thank you. And, and if someone pays you a compliment, you don't, they don't want you to deny it. They don't want you to refuse it. If they do something wonderful for you or kind to you or for you, then our response should be thank you. Gosh, that's beautiful. Very powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, cool. thanks for having me on this show, man. It's been really cool talking to you. Oh, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure getting to speak with you. Thank you so much for being here today. No worries. So today's episode was brought to you by the HOCL Association. If you're an HOCL business owner or looking to join the industry, visit hocla.org to learn more and book your free consultation today. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the LUE Podcast, or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Pacifico Soldati, wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness. Yeah.